Hello and welcome. Elizabeth Lockwood here. I'm your host for Mile Long Trace, where we unpack the process of practicing commercial interior design. This podcast is a catalyst to elevate you as a commercial interior designer, to make you resilient and successful at your career by unpacking the facets of the design process, elevating your professional practice through organizational dynamics tips, celebrating emerged practitioners through a series of candid interviews so that you can hear how they navigated their career path, and lastly, creating a Q&A platform to build quality professional resources. In the end, I want you to feel supported in your role as a commercial interior designer so that you can be successful in your career. As passionate designers, we want to elevate the commercial interior design industry by providing credible resources to support emerging practitioners. In order to keep this content accessible, Mylong Trace is seeking industry partners and sponsors to grow this platform. Industry sponsors and partners that are passionate about supporting, influencing, and advancing commercial interior design. Mylong Trace is offering annual and a la carte sponsorship. More information and to contact us, go to MileLongTrace.com. Generous sponsorship dollars support the future of commercial interior design by building a stronger community, knowledge base, and attrition at firms and an industry at large. Hello, everyone. I hope you've been enjoying the last few episodes we've released. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into taking the NCIDQ exam. We're going to hear from Julianne Rodriguez. She's founded Creative Confidant. It's a blog and social media platform that provides resources to those thinking about taking the NCIDQ exam. Julianne is joining us today to share her experience in taking the NCIDQ exam. Since there was such great information that she provided us in this Q&A platform, we're dividing this show into two parts. So the first part, we're going to dive into her path from school to graduation, when she chose to take the NCIDQ exam, hear her experience in taking it, and what spawned creating Creative Confidant. We'll also hear about what Creative Confidant has to offer. And so in this first part series, so in part one, we'll break down the NCIDQ exam for you. In part two, we'll go into further details providing tips and tricks so that you can help study for the exam. Julianne is a licensed interior designer with experience in high-end hospitality, retail, residential, and workplace clients. With a science and fine arts background, she has a unique love for the intersections of art, culture, design, and is passionate about creating environments that enrich the guest experience. Julianne earned her Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Interior Architecture from Cleveland Institute of Art and moved to Southern California upon graduation to start her career in design. Her work has been featured globally in Business of Home, Dezine, El Decor, Vogue China, Architectural Digest Spain, Wired, and more. She achieved both her NCIDQ certification and her LEED AP ID plus C accreditation, and is extremely passionate about advocating for the advancement of interior design professionals through certification. In 2016, she founded Creative Confidant, an online resource that provides NCIDQ study tips and tricks to support and engage and encourage designers to pass the NCIDQ exam. I hope this show resonates with you and encourages you to take the NCIDQ exam. Okay, Julianne, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
Yeah. Yeah. How's your day going? So far, so good. Just another gray day in San Francisco, but it's so great. Oh, bummer. I think we have the nice weather up here for you guys then. Oh. <laughs> Gorgeous and sunny. And where I'm sitting inside right now doing a podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you can enjoy it later. Yes, yes. It'll be great. It's good to get a little bit of vitamin D this time of year. Totally. All right. So we'll start with the first question. What initially attracted you to the profession of interior design? Uh, well, actually, it was using the left half of my brain and doing the exact opposite that led me to interior design. I initially went to school for pre-med with a double major in biology and Spanish, and I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I was always good at science and foreign, foreign language and honestly just had romanticized the idea of the industry from Grey's Anatomy. But at the heart of it, I really just wanted to help people. So I thought science, Spanish, helping people, let's do medicine. Great. So I started along my journey at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And throughout freshman and sophomore year, I hated my classes. It was honestly Ochem that really did me in. Um, and it wasn't until sophomore year that I fully accepted that pre-med just wasn't for me. I remember taking a calc exam and I had studied so hard for it, signed up for tutoring and did office hours. And yet when I handed in my exam, I knew I did horribly. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm spending all of my time and energy on something that A, isn't working and B, I didn't like, and I needed to do something else. So Case Western shared a campus with an art school, the Cleveland Institute of Art. And so I handed in my exam. I walked across the campus and I asked for a tour at CIA. And I thought, if there isn't anything for me here at Case, then maybe there's something here for me. And I remember seeing um, like the different departments on the tour and thinking, okay, probably not painting or sculpture, but immediately was drawn to interior design. For one, um, it honestly never dawned on me that interior design was more than just decorating homes, um, that behind all of the stores and hotels and restaurants, there's a team of designers creating the space. And I also saw how, how it could fulfill both sides of my brain. It's creative and analytical. Um, and that I could help people through it. So be it in their home or at work, I could help them have a much more enjoyable experience through the environment created. Um, so I was hooked. And initially, I was a bit concerned going from, you know, pre-med to potentially pre-unemployment, going to art school during the recession. But I figured it had to be better than what I was currently doing. And I had about four years to figure it out. So I went for it. Well, I really love how you started off saying that you enjoyed helping people. And a lot of us, I don't think, know what we don't know, right, until we get into it. And I think we're still even uncovering some of the layers and facets of our industry. But it's there's so many aspects to commercial interior design and interior architecture and the aspect of helping and enriching other people's lives and whether or not, you know, someone practice residential and they see it on a very intimate scale or someone practices, practices commercial interior design and really sees it on a larger magnitude where you're maybe helping people with facilities and university campuses or corporate office environments and medical facilities. There's so many aspects where we really touch people's lives. It's great to hear that you had that path of unwinding and finding it. Yeah, it was um, definitely a journey, but so glad that I that I found it in the end. 
going into a little bit more detail, what aspect of the profession really fills your bucket on a day-to-day or a weekly? Um, well, back to what I mentioned, that I can be both creative and analytical. Um, I'm the type of person who needs to fulfill both sides of my brain. And I can do this, for example, you know, in concept design by creating a new concept for this space. That's really like the creative side. And then you know, filling the analytical side, it's also by reviewing line by line of a furniture budget and double checking all of the specs. Um, I love it all. And as I mentioned before, I love helping people and making things better. Uh, And as a designer, I'm able to do this by creating an environment that gives them a much better experience than before, because everything from the flooring to the ceiling has been thoughtfully considered for them. Um, And most importantly, I really love hosting. So whether you're staying with me for a weekend or working in an office design, I really want you to make, I want to make sure you feel welcome and comfortable and inspired, especially if you're going to be spending 45 to 50 hours a week in it. Um, and so for me, interior design is an ex- extension of hosting, but at a much larger scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think going back to that left, right brain, it really is a profession that taps into both. And I think that that's one that's not emphasized as much on um, HGTV or, you know, some of the other articles of where people hear about interior design first at is that it really does force you to go back and forth between being creative and being analytical and that, um, that kind of sweet spot in the middle of being able to tap into both or being able to relish in one side of your brain for a little while and then going to the other when you need a break is always nice. Yeah, definitely. And it's so funny. I think a lot of designers feel that way too. You know, if you're constantly sketching and modeling, it's like, oh, I just need that break. Like I just need to do some red lines and then you kind of appreciate the other half of it even more. Yeah. 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 We all love redlining. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about the path you took. Okay. You mentioned graduation. So what happened after graduation? How's your practice evolved? So I graduated in 2013 and initially I thought I would stay in Ohio and work at one of the firms I had interned at during college. I was fortunate enough to have three different internships throughout college. So when I graduated, I had a bit of a network and I reached out to them for job opportunities. And throughout the interview process, I quickly realized that firms at that time were looking for senior designers, especially as the economy was still recovering from the recession and design firms simply couldn't afford to train and pay a junior designer. So when all the firms in Ohio said no, I think I had interviewed at four or five firms, um, I started to expand my search radius and looked at firms in Chicago, North Carolina, and Atlanta. And I saw that a fellow CIA alum worked at a design firm in Charlotte. So I reached out to him to learn more about the firm and see if they were hiring. They unfortunately also were not hiring, but he was kind enough to put me in touch with one of their offices in Orange County, California, who was. And California definitely wasn't on my radar at all, Um, especially being born and raised in Ohio. I just figured I would you know, stay in Ohio or stay around that area near family and friends. But I needed a job and figured an interview couldn't hurt. So I hopped on a plane and interviewed in Orange County and then accepted the role about a month later. Um, And that was definitely a big move for me. But I learned so much about myself in the process. I didn't know a soul in Orange County. So similar to my transition from pre-med to art school, I was starting over. 
Um, and while the firm was a really great firm and I had met one of my best friends to this day there, it wasn't the right fit for me. So about a year after I joined, I got a niche to try something new. Um, and I saw another CIA alum was working in San Francisco at Gensler and I'd already always admired the firm. So I reached out just to learn more about his role and what it was like working for the company and how he enjoyed it. Um, and a few weeks later, I saw that they were hiring for a role in the hospitality studio. So I immediately applied and asked if he would refer me. And I flew up a few weeks after that for an interview. And then shortly thereafter, accepted the job and started packing up to move to San Francisco. And it was at Gensler where I learned so much. It honestly felt like getting a master's and I had met so many incredible designers. And again, some of which are still my best friends to this day. In about two years in, I started thinking about a change and what it would be like to work on the client side because I really wanted to own a project from start to finish from when they signed a lease on a building to the first day of business and beyond. You know, some, there's so many times where you have a project and you send it off to the client and your scope of work is done and you wonder like, well, like what happened with that space? You know, do they enjoy it? Is it what they were looking for? Um, so that's really where I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And I then got a job at a large tech company um, working on their internal architecture and design team. And I've been there for about four years. And it was in 2016 that I passed the NCIDQ and then launched Creative Confidant. And here we are. Beautiful aspect of working at a larger architectural firm is there's so many resources available when you first start practicing. Um, there's, you know, there's somebody that specializes in almost anything, right? And the library team that you probably have at, you know, a larger firm is so expansive. And so your product knowledge really goes up and you're, you know, there's probably spec writers and guessing. Um, similar to my experience at the larger architectural firm I worked at is we had our own spec writing team. We had our own team, you know, that really just focused on detailing. And so you always had somebody to help you navigate through the design process and really support you in your role. Then I really resonate with you saying, you know, not getting to see the end result and understanding, you know, the impact you're making. And I think the beauty about this profession is we can go in so many directions, and I don't think that it's always apparent when you first start out or even when you sign up for design school, right? The the level of where you can take this field and the depth that you're taught in school, and then when you first start practicing um, where you can take your career. And so getting to work, you're now working on the client side in a role that's allowing you to really have a large impact in the teams that you work with and seeing and hearing firsthand their experiences. And that's wonderful. I think that's what I also love about interior design is there's so many different paths you can take. And it's kind of all about navigating it for yourself and really looking at where you want to take your career and what you want to get out of it. Yeah. So what made you want to start Creative Confidant? Um, well, I started it. I started thinking about it when I initially started researching about the NCIDQ. Um, it was let's see, 2014 when I started to consider taking the exam, and I had just finished taking my Lead Green Associates and Lead uh, IDNC exam. And so while you know, part of my brain was like, okay, we need a break from exams. The other part was like, well, this is really interesting, and it's really important for not only our industry, but for my own professional development. Um, 
And so I started thinking about it when I started researching and realizing that there really weren't a lot of resources out there um, to kind of help and support interior designers who wanted to take the exam. Um, at the time, I had found, you know, the CIDQ website, um, the book, the NCIDQ reference manual, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. You spent a lot of time reading that. Um, and a blog that really hadn't been updated since 2011. And so I was like, well, this is so confusing. If it's such an important exam, then where are all the resources for designers who wanted to take it? And so once I kept researching and Googling and not finding anything, I thought, well, this is absurd. I'll just do it myself and then help others by taking the test because surely I'm not the only designer taking these and struggling with these issues. So I saw the white space and I went for it. Um, and I knew that I needed to pass the exam to earn credibility for my future readers. And I also knew I would probably forget or block out all the pain points I experienced by the time I finished taking all three exams. So I started jotting down anything I found confusing or difficult that would resonate with other designers. And so initially, I found the application process so confusing. So I jotted down that experience and used it as a future um, blog post. And then uh, to figure out what the best study materials that I needed to use were, I literally went through Gensler's directory and emailed anyone and everyone with NCIDQ after their name and just asked, hey, like, I'm hoping to take the NCIDQ in the fall. What did you use to study? How was your experience? What are your tips and tricks? Um, And with that, I just kept hoping that there was a single resource that would just give me everything I needed to know. And so I used, you know, all the questions and all the answers. And that's how, you know, my NCIDQ 101 post was born. So... I kept jotting down all the ideas and notes. And then um, as soon as I finished taking my final exam in the spring of 2016, um, I built the website, wrote a few posts, and then held my breath, hoping that I passed and could actually launch this thing. Um, And thankfully, I did. And then I launched it a day or so after I received my NCIDQ certificate. You know, and I think for our listeners out there is, it's okay if you don't always pass it the first time. Sometimes it's just about how you take an exam and getting good at that again. And I know for me, going to design school, I was not a good exam taker. And so going into interior architecture, it's like excelled in all my studio classes, which were pass, no pass, because they were project based. And that's what I always thought was my thing. And, you know, interesting to go back and think about my process of after I graduated a couple of years in thinking I needed to elevate and take things to the next step. And so taking the NCIDQ seemed logical and did that. And I was so afraid to take it because I thought, oh, this is, you know, I'm not a good exam taker. I'm terrible at it. I was, you know, that side of me hadn't been tapped into, I think, yet. And I think for me, what really helped was recognizing that it was finally a subject that I knew something about. And that's what I was, you know, that's what the exam was really asking for. It wasn't um, a SAT that, that, you know, was very relevant. And I, um, you know, passed all my sections the first time. And I, you know, I'm living proof that I am not a good exam taker or thought I wasn't until I took the NCADQ. And then after that, took the lead AP ID plus C and passed that on my first try as well. And so I think for all of us that maybe think that that side of us isn't um, 
something we're good at, you know, there, there's, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> to this day, I'm a terrible test taker. You know, I get so stressed and so nervous. And, you know, initially when I graduated school, I was like, great, I am done with exams. That's what this diploma means. And then, you know, here we are taking four exams later. It's, it's still a part of it, but um, yeah, it's okay if you're a bad test taker. That's why I also wanted to, you know, create Creative Confidant to show that you don't have to be, you know, one of those students who just doesn't have to study and they like, you know, completely ace the SAT somehow, you know, it's okay. And there are ways that you can learn how to study and how to take a test and get through it. And it's okay if you don't pass on the first time. I honestly was about four points away from failing the IDFX, you know, barely got through D for diploma for sure. (laughs) But it is absolutely okay if you don't pass the first time. The fact that you're taking it and and will hopefully stick with it is what is what matters. Remind our listeners again, what made you want to take the NCATQ and the lead exams? What kind of got that rolling for you in your mind and your career? Yeah. um, Initially, it was because I wanted to learn more about them and about the topics that they covered. Um, I'm the type of person who's all or nothing. And so if I'm going to learn about something, I was going to learn everything that I could, and I might as well get the credential while I was at it. So for LEAD, we had an introductory class at school and sustainability was immediately a no-brainer for me. You know, if you could design something that was better for the environment and the user, then why wouldn't you? So Uh, When I moved to Orange County, I didn't know a soul, and I had a lot of free time on my hands, and the firm I worked for was willing to pay for the exam and study materials, so I figured, why not? I have the time, and I'm passionate about it. I want to learn more, and it's free. So I went ahead and studied and got the Green Associates in Orange County, and then when I moved to San Francisco and worked at Gensler, they had an incredible internal team that focused on sustainability exactly what you mentioned before about working at a large firm. There are so many resources um, and I wanted to learn more. And so Gensler was incredibly supportive of professional development and also really heavily way licensure during performance reviews. So I joined a study group, which is also a great way to meet people and make friends when you're new to a firm. And let's face it, making friends as an adult is the worst. (laughs) So it really helped with that. Um, And a few months later, I passed my exam and earned my lead ID and C. And so for the NCIDQ, um, I I really started to hear a lot about it when I was at Gensler. And I also started researching more about it. And I realized how important it was for our industry and my own professional development. Um, And I took each exam one at a time. a, it was a lot more affordable for me to do it that way. And B, I can only get reimbursed once I pass an exam. And as you know, they're very expensive. So I wanted to make sure I could focus on one test at a time to increase my chances of passing. And I ended up taking a year and a half, but um, I earned my NCIDQ certification in June of 2016. That's great. Yeah. And so for our listeners out there that maybe aren't as familiar with, we've been talking a lot about the NCATQ, but maybe haven't backed up enough to say exactly what it is. Can you break things down for us and describe what the NCATQ exam is? The NCATQ stands for the National Council for Interior Design Qualification, um, and it's a series of three computerized exams developed and administered by the CIDQ, the Council of Interior Design Qualification, um, which was founded in 1974. 
So the NCIDQ is a globally recognized exam and the highest certification an interior designer can earn. You know, it's the AREs or the bar for interior designers. So once you pass all three exams, you become an NCIDQ certificate holder and can use the NCIDQ appellation after your name. And why do you believe it's important important for other emerging interior designers to take the exam? Maybe just one more summary for us on things you've heard that might encourage and help them to consider taking it. As I mentioned, it's globally recognized exam and the highest certification an interior designer can earn. It's what really will set you apart from other interior designers and decorators. And especially now with all of the Pinterest and Instagram decorators out there, it's a way to distinguish yourself yourself and show that you have expertise in the interior design field. So it will definitely give you the confidence and skill set that you'll need on a daily basis, not just during the exam, um, especially in regards to technical knowledge such as ADA and building codes and life safety codes. Um, even in earning the NCIDQ um, shows that you have the skills to design and execute interior environments that protect safety, healthcare, and well-being of its inhabitants, which, as you know, it's a core value of the CIDQ. Everything goes back to safety, healthcare, and well-being of the inhabitants. And because of this, it really helps elevate our profession by increasing the amount of licensed interior designers in our industry. So um, today, interior design laws requiring the NCIDQ certificate have have been enacted in 27 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and eight Canadian provinces. So in some states, the use of the term interior designer is limited to professionals meeting the state's requirements, aka those who have earned the NCIDQ. And in others, the state regulates the use of certified interior designer, registered interior designer, or another specific title. So also some states also regulate the practice of interior design, um, and unlicensed professionals are prohibited from performing certain interior design services, such as stamping your own drawings or submitting them for permitting, um, which is really important if you want to run your own firm and be able to do everything that you need to do. And lastly, it'll give you the potential to earn more money in promotions, um, as many firms require NCIDQ certification. And if not at your current job, then definitely for your next one. It's it's what recruiters will be looking for and will help you stand out among other candidates. That was so beautifully said. I loved that you mentioned advocacy. That's something that has been um, something I'm passionate about for all of us that have spent four to five years getting a bachelor or a bachelor in interior architecture um, is that we've worked hard. We've worked really, really hard to get where we're at. And um, for myself personally, it's frustrating when you come up against a interior designer that is self-proclaimed. And, um, you know, I think for our clients, there's so there's so many sectors that interior designers can go into. And for those of us that are practicing commercial interior design, I think that there does need to be a level and a benchmark set. Um, that's not to say that there are there's amazing, amazing designers that are out there that have um, figured it out as they've gone. They're extremely, extremely successful. And I think that there's a place for them. But there's also, I think, a misconception in our industry and everyone gets kind of lumped together. And for those of us that have really spent the time, I think doing more of probably what's that left brain that we talked about at the beginning of the show is the analytical side that's really looking at code evaluation, fire and life safety 
egress plans, um, the material performances, um, looking at ASTMs and, you know, fire ratings and all the different aspects and even sustainability aspects that we look at when we vet products is that the exam asks us of those things. And I think that it's a really great opportunity for the community at large of interior designers to come together and say, this is our benchmark for practicing. And my hope is all states can get through legislation. Oregon is one that is trying and we've come up very close and then had some, um, you know, different vocabulary hiccups along the way that felt it was exclusive in its practice. um, Or there was a fiscal budget impact that was our challenge. And so Um, Oregon is working now with IIDA and ASID nationals to try to get through um, along with other states as well and have a a recognition. And for us, it goes back to that in the Oregon Structural Specialty Code, it says drawings must be prepared by a registered professional. And unfortunately, we're not recognized by the state as a registered professional. So that's one that we've really been working at is we're the ones creating those drawings. We're the ones that have that deeply rooted knowledge. We're being examined on it, right? Um, We have an examination that's asking us specifically those points, and yet um, we're not able to practice to our fullest extent. Um, So that's, you know, that's what gets me going (laughs) is is advocacy. Um, And how these play an important role and part in that next step, because like you said, when you graduate, you know, you there's only so much you can learn in school. And then you start to have that application and that mentoring process when you graduate. And, um, you know, the examination is just another one of those steps that I think is really important to take when you graduate to solidify your knowledge. And, um, you know, I'll also make a plug here that I personally think it's better to take the exam as soon as you can after school um, to start that process. And I think you can probably go into that in a second on which parts you can take during school or right after school. When you're still in the study realm and maybe your life hasn't ramped up with a house and family and kids and maybe you're just starting your career and you're working on networking, is that's a really great time to take the exam um, versus waiting 10 years or five years and then trying to go back to what are my study tips. Maybe you could talk to us about the three parts of the exam. Absolutely. Um, And I totally agree with you that, you know, starting as soon as you can out of school while you are in that mindset, um, it just makes a world of a difference. You know, especially if you're working at a firm that supports it and will reimburse you, like, why not? It's essentially free at that point. Um, so back to the exam. So the NCIDQ is comprised of three different exams, the IDFX, the IDPX, and the practicum exam. And each of the exams focus on seven different content areas, which are developed by the CIDQ. So building systems, codes, construction standards, contract administration, design application, professional practice, and project coordination. So the IDFX, which stands for Interior Design Fundamentals Exam, and IDPX, Interior Design Professional Exam, are three-hour multiple-choice exams. Um, And the key difference is that you can take your IDFX prior to completing the work experience required for the IDPX and practicum, which is another incentive to take it as soon as possible and just get it done. And the practicum exam is an interactive computer exam consisting of three CIDQ case studies, so large commercial, small commercial, and multifamily residential. The exams are offered 
twice a year, so during the months of April and October at Prometric testing sites, and then applicants have five years to complete all three exams. Julianne, this has been so fascinating, and we've gone into so many details that I want to really make sure I'm being respectful of everyone's time and trying to stay at about 20 minutes per episode. So what we'll do here is we'll take a short break, and we're going to create a part two series where we go into a little bit more details about how to sign up for the exam, um, when you're allowed to take each section of it, and then Julianne will talk a little bit more about Creative Confidant and some of the resources that she has available. So please tune in for part two of this series. Alrighty, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want more, please spread the love and subscribe to this podcast. You can find supporting information in the show notes for this episode on milelongtrace.com. If you're itching to have a question answered about the interior design profession, visit our website to contact me. Don't forget to follow MyLongTrace on Instagram to stay in the know. Hey, share this with your friends to grow this platform so that we can continue to provide you kick-ass information that is relevant to you and your profession. Till next time, keep designing, y'all.